As we go around the spiral of the work that reconnects, we begin with the beginning, which is gratitude. And I love it was permeated so much of the remarks and teachings of this morning. I wish all evolutionary biologists could teach the way Wes does, calling forth our uh, gladness at being alive, which is a pretty essential ingredient, especially in a challenging time, in a dark time when the temptation for so many of us as we're assaulted and pummeled by one piece of bad news after another of stupendous dimensions uh, want to just uh, pull the blankets over our head, shut down. And if we don't shut down, then we tip right over into panic. So sometimes, you know, they call the Buddha... Dharma, the middle way. But for me, in these times like this, that were uh, coming of the lifting of the veil, apocalyptic times, the middle way I see is a road heading toward the kind of future we want on our beautiful earth. But with the dark clouds that are amassing over us now, It's easy to fall into a ditch on either side of the road, and one ditch is paralysis, and the other on the other side is panic. And it can be, they're both very easy to fall into. But we can stay on the road if we link arms, keep ourselves on the path. Well, uh, I got really interested some time back about how our attitudes and gumption really are uh, influenced hugely by the way we image our relationship to the world. And it seemed to me that there were four ways that I could see in almost every major religion, major religious tradition. Uh, <clears throat> no one has the corner on them all, but they, that you can find them there. And, and that is to image uh, the world as a battlefield. Secondly, or to see the world as a trap. Stuck in and a lot to get out. Or to see the world as the beloved. Or to see the world as your larger self where the boundaries between self and world are very uh, permeable, like the surface of a pond, like the boundaries of a cell. Indeed, it's like feeling you're a cell in the larger body of the world. So let's just reflect for a moment on those ways of imaging the world. The first two are quite prevalent in our time, and they're very ancient. To see the world as a battlefield, where the 
forces of light struggle with the forces of darkness, where the legions of evil are, do battle with the angelic forces. Whoa, that goes way back to the Zoroastrians and Manichaeans. And whenever things are get a little scary, uh, that's sort of an easy way. I'm sure you will find an evolutionary um, um, <laughs> stage of ours that that harks back to. But the thing is that here we are in the 21st century, and that way of visioning our relation to the world, seeing it as a battlefield, is very strong. You see it? You see it around you? They're the believers in the knot. They're the terrorists and the rest of us. The good guys. They're the good guys and the bad guys. And uh, when things are very, very uncertain, that's a temptation to go there. Because you can feel, particularly if you feel certain you're on the side of the right and the good, on God's side. And then, uh, no matter how threatening circumstances might be, you have assurance that you'll win in the end. Because you're on God's side. Yeah. And it doesn't really matter what you do to the people on the other side. You have to get rid of them some way or other. You have to triumph one way or another. And where's the world there? Especially the natural world. Where is that in this way, is in this mindset? It's like a stage set. It's like a backdrop to our moral battles against the evil ones. It doesn't really matter. What matters is that you win. What matters is what side you're on. Well, you find that in all of them. You might say, well, not in the Buddha Dharma, but mm-mm. <laughs> when you've got a civil war going on, as we have over the last 30 years in Sri Lanka, uh, the uh, Buddhists got pretty... Pretty tyrannical, pretty dualistic. So it's, a, it's something we just have to uh, cope with and watch out for in the human condition. So that's popular in our time. And then there's the other one. What was that second one? Remember what I said? World is trap. This world... I was about to say this world sucks, but I won't use that word because I don't like it. But uh, this world is a broken place. There's a lot of suffering in it and a lot of ignorance. And it's, we can be forgiven, can we not, for wanting to get out of here. 
And that uh, view of the world as particularly the material world, the time-ridden world, the world where things rot and decay, where death happens, uh, where lostness happens. Let's get out of here. And so, of course, uh, the there's a strong sort of current in every major religion of seeing spirituality as an escape from the broken, suffering world, material world. So you, you, their spiritual journey then, when you image the world as trap, is from uh, tends to be is from the material into the immaterial, from matter into spirit. It, it tend, you tend to go up when you're escaping from this messy world. Is that not so? So from darkness to light, from death to life. Boy, these polarities get really separated and strong. Such a temptation, isn't it, to want a safe haven where all will be tranquil? All tears will be dried? All crimes forgotten or forgiven? They never happened. Maybe that was an unreal world down there. So uh, this view is kind of connected with what in philosophy is called subjective idealism. And it has a strong neoplatonic streak in it that you better uh, aim your efforts to extricate yourself from this suffering, broken, material world and ascend to eternal realms, bliss. It sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Nirvana, here I come. What? Nirvana, here I come. Yeah, that's right, right. Hmm. But that's not the... um, The problem with that, you see, is we've had a lot of that in our history. And we have a lot of it right now. But um, where's the natural world in that? It's a place that gets polluted, contaminated, clear-cut, pesticide-ridden, fought over. So this material world, this this natural world around us, that gets eclipsed, doesn't it? As a matter of fact, the rate of destruction seems to be um, accelerating when you're aiming to get out of it. So I was glad in my musings to... Uh, see in, in all the traditions that there were uh, two other ways of, that, of 
uh, I could find very popular and maybe not as popular as those two of imaging our relation to our world. And one is uh, as the beloved <clears throat> object of our uh, delight, worthy of all praises, wonder of intricacy and beauty, stunning in its miraculous variety, inside and out. Now when you see the world as your beloved, it becomes quite real. It might break your heart because you see contamination, hemorrhaging, radioactivity hemorrhaging into the Pacific at Fukushima. You see the world as your beloved, that's like a knife in your heart. But when you really love something and it's sick, (laughs) you don't turn your back on it. Your mother, your father, your child, when they're sick, sick unto death even, do you say, oop, that's depressing and walk away? No, that's your beloved. So you're right there, tenderly. We see that all around us. You know, some of the, the, the religious strain, and, and it was, I find that the most uh, beautifully is in, in Hindu uh, bhajans, the devotional songs of Hinduism. When uh, you sing praises to uh, the Lord, Krishna, but you sing as, as, as if he were the natural world with his blue skin like the monsoon clouds and with the uh, glinting, laughing eyes like the stars in the heavens, with the velvety skin like the softest flower and those honeyed lips. It's all images of loving your world. The world becomes itself your lover. And you, the beloved, too, And the wonderful thing is when you dance and play with this way of seeing the world around you, it's not only that love swells up in your heart and praises, but you feel loved back. Yeah. As I mentioned, I was on retreat. And amongst the scriptures I found, in, and even and in Dogen too, a uh, sense of what you love, loves you back. And you send, and that's in Tibetan practice too, you send out to all Buddhas and Bodhisattvas the uh, uh, well-wishing, it's even stronger than loving-kindness. It's sort of like an exultant love of wishing well. And then you just sit there and feel it all coming back on you. Yeah. 
that's what true love is. It tends to be a two-way street. And then the third, not the third, that was the third, the fourth, world is self. Now that was left off the title of our retreat. Uh, But you know uh, that the mystics in every tradition speak of that experience so real that it almost is beyond words. They can hardly put it in two words, maybe. Um, Rapturous songs, perhaps, or just stillness, the stillness of a kind of completion, like Sri Ramana Maharshi, just where... You become what you love. See, so the world is lover and world is self-images and ways of seeing. I think they kind of uh, play together. And I find myself moving back and forth from one to another. It sort of depends a little bit what you had for breakfast. You know, there are times when you're just full of praise or as... um, Ramakrishna said, you know, I don't want to be God. I want to taste, I don't want to be sugar. I want to taste sugar. So this, this delight in the, in the relationship. But that is in all acts of love. When you, there's those moments of intensity and lovemaking where there's a becoming one. There's a striving of all lovers is to become one. And so world becomes uh, seen as self or self in a great transformational shift in identity. Self becomes a world and there's nothing separate from you. There's nothing that you cannot cherish. Well, that seems strong. So I say tolerate. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, this work that we're going to be doing in the work that reconnects plays around with these last two. And particularly today, uh, what in relation to world is lover, world is self, that uh, <clears throat> natural response on our part, which is thanks which is, what a gift, which is uh, praise and gratitude. And uh, I'm going to, we're going to do some processes here, too, as a matter of fact, one before the break and one after. And, uh, And before this first one, I would like to Uh, bow to the teachings of the native people of Turtle Island, of this continent. We are so privileged to be nurtured and growing on a land that in its traditional people for scores of thousands of years 
awoke in them the <clears throat> and received from them as a primary expression of their relationship to life, their thanksgiving. This, the, word, the thanksgiving address is what they first said and first say, because it continues to this day, at meetings when they come together. So I will first speak of the people, native people in upstate New York, where uh, I grew up. Now, when I grew up, I didn't know them. They were invisible to me. I was on my grandfather's farm, and I was the rest of the nine months a year in Manhattan going to school. But they're there, and I've come to know them, and uh, I think that's part of the great turning of our time, that we're all becoming more aware of the native voices, the shamanic voices, uh, their teachings, their wisdom, that have been silenced for so long. And uh, it began for me just in the last decade when I learned that uh, the uh, Onondaga people, who are one of the six nations of the Confederacy, that we often call Iroquois Confederacy, but that's not their name. Their name is the Haudenosaunee, uh, that they had, were the last to make a <clears throat> claim, legal claim against the federal and state governments for their ancestral lands that had been taken from them, but which they still can see. They're in the treaties. It's just that the treaties have been neglected. And uh, the other, the Cayuga, Seneca, Mohawk, uh, Tuscarora, um, that's it, isn't it? Um, had all had their uh, legal processes gotten uh, uh, money, reimbursement, some had built casinos. Everybody was wondering, what is the Onondaga going to do? Because they had the biggest swath of land all the way from Pennsylvania up into Ontario. And the, um, when I heard that finally, they, de- they deliberated, they have the most, most um, um, traditional of the forms of government, and the clan mothers are still the ones who have the last word. And they were finally their spiritual leader, their Tadadaho, in a press conference in Syracuse, uh, announced it. And they were bringing their case to the courts that, to ask not for any return of land, not for any money, but for the land to be cleaned up for the sake of all who live there. Whites, browns, yellows, what, for all the people. They're not asking anything else but that it be cleaned up for the future ones, for the coming generations. That was a lot because there are big chemical plants there. Onondaga Lake is about the most toxic lake in North America. And that's what they asked. Of course, the governor of New York said it was too late. They should have thought of that before. At any rate, uh, I went to see them. And uh, I had to go. I, 
just the word, just learning this made me feel proud to be a human being. And I wanted to see the people who had this kind of uh, moral majesty. And I found their little, uh, it is small reservation. It's just a postage stamp size on the map. And spent an afternoon there. And since then I've been back several times. It always seems to be on my birthday, which is quite wonderful. And um, when I was shown the school that they just built for the teenagers, children and teenagers uh, on the, uh, na- in the nation, the Onondaga Nation, uh, brought in. And there in the middle of the floor was a, in wood, inlaid in green wood, a turtle. Light shining down on it from a, a skylight, and then, and my guide Frida, a clan mother herself, she said, "Here we bring the children in, and we do the uh, Thanksgiving ritual, but not the full one, just just a short one, just twenty minutes in the morning." And this huge appetite rose in me and I just looked at her and we sat down together she got my message and she gave it to me it's passed down orally there's not a right way to say it I found that you can find it now the Mohawks have put it on the web or have they well if you write them they'll give it to you That's where I got this. And so she said, now we give greetings and thanks to our older brother, the sun, that rises every morning to bring light so we can see each other's faces and warmth to draw up the plants. And spoke some more spontaneously. And then with this wonderful gesture, she said, and now our minds are one. You can try that. And now our minds are one. And I realized that this is the means of coming together at a deep level of unifying our minds. And so there is the, and then the waters. So we give greetings and thanks to the waters of our world. They quench our thirst and provide us with strength. Water is life. We know its power in many forms. Waterfalls, rain, mists, streams, rivers, oceans. So we send greetings and thanks to the waters. And now our minds are one. Well, the fish. We turn our minds to all the fish life. They were instructed to cleanse and purify the water, and they give themselves to us as food, and we're grateful that we can still find pure fish, pure water and fish we can eat. And in that gratitude, now our minds are one. And on and on she went to the trees, and what they teach us, and the forms that they take. And there, this being upstate New York, 
the chief of the trees, the maple, and the beauty and how it holds the soil, and in gratitude, and now our minds are one. And to the animals, and to the medicinal plants, and to Grandmother Moon, who draws the tides and keeps the rhythms of the women. On and on. When I look into the faces of the uh, elders, the Native American elders, because this capacity to give thanks is true of most all the peoples that I've heard of that are the ancient Eingebona, the, the, the indigenous people here, uh, that you see a kind of uh, nobility. And they have been spat upon, shat upon. They have been humiliated and dispossessed. They have been massacred and unnumbered. They have been treating abysmally. They have been addicted. They've been put in jail. They've been carted around. It is unspeakable what has been done over the centuries to the native people. And those who haven't gone nuts, those who are still there, those who are still serving their people, have a quality in them of such dignity And it has, I become persuaded that this practice of gratitude is ennobling. You don't whine and you don't complain, but you give gratitude for what sustains your life. And that in itself gives you ah. Tremendous staying power. And, and I'm thinking, I want this for my people, the pale-skinned ones. I want this because hard times are ahead for us. And if we could learn to uh, cherish and practice this uh, thanksgiving we could survive a holocaust too. So I have two, I have a, a two other uh, readings from Native peoples that show what happens when you have a grateful eye even when your own life can feel mean and demeaned. But when you have a grateful eye and love what you see of this natural world, then, now here's a poem by Scott Mamaday, a poet of the Cheyenne, I believe. And he shows that, whoops, this poem, that when you love something, there's a shift in identity. And world becomes not just lover, but self. I am a feather on the bright sky. I am the blue horse that runs on the plain. 
I am the fish that rolls shining in the water. I am the shadow that follows a child. I am the evening light, the luster of meadows. I am an eagle playing with the wind. I am a cluster of bright beads. I am the farthest star. I am the cold of dawn. I am the roaring of the rain. I am the glitter on the crust of the snow. I am the long track of the moon in a lake. I am a flame of four colors. I am a deer standing away in the dusk. I am a field of sumac in the pom- and the pomme blanche. I am an angle of geese in the winter sky. I am the hunger of a young wolf. I am the, I am the whole dream of things. You see, I am alive. I am alive. You see, I am alive. I am alive. Gratitude seems to do that. Gratitude seems to kindle a capacity to receive the quickening, invigorating uh, essence in all the things you love and can see. So here is a voice I love from Australia, an Aboriginal named Big Bill Nagy. And uh, from this, he, he starts going even beyond this into a great reciprocity made alive by his uh, grateful response. <clears throat> well, I'll tell you about this story about story where you feel trees, grass, star. You feel that because star and tree ain't working with you. We got blood pressure, but same thing. Spirit on your body ain't working with you. Even nice windy blow, having a sleep because that spirit ain't with you. Listen carefully this. You can hear me. I'm telling you, because earth just like mother and father or brother of you, that tree, same thing. Your body, my body, I suppose I'm same as you. Anyone, tree working when you're sleeping and dreaming. You're being loved. You're being held. We're being worked with. Can you open to that? Is that possible for us, schooled in the great loneliness from centuries of hyper-individualism? This story, you can listen carefully, you can listen low. If you in the city, well, I suppose a lot of houses, you can't hardly look this star. But maybe one night you look. Have a look, star, because that's the feeling. 
string blood through your body. That star e working there. See? E working. I can see. I love it, tree, because he loved me too. He watching me, same as you. Tree working with your body, my body, he working with us. While you sleep, he working. Daylight, when you're walking around, he worked too. That tree, grass, that all like your, our father. Dirt, earth. I sleep with this earth. Grass, just like your brother. And my blood in my arms, this grass. This dirt for us. Because we'll be dead, we'll be going this earth. That's the story now. So, um, thank you for listening so carefully. And now we have a chance to uh, speak and share, and we're going to do it in pairs. This is a very simple process that uh, we fold into the work that reconnects. So you're going to stand up and um, find another person. It'd be nice if it's somebody you don't know. I bet there are plenty of people you don't know here. And then sit down together on chairs or on cushions facing each other. <laughs>